to come together every single Sunday and adorn Him together in unison and in song, singing such truths. And Julia, thank you so much um, for leading us through that. The words, who has felt the nails upon his hands, bearing all the guilt of sinful man, God eternal, humbled to the grave, Jesus Savior, risen now to reign. We could sing that every single Sunday and it will still impact us the same way every time. So as we open our Bibles to Matthew 18, um, I want to make a few comments about, um, I'll zoom out, make a few comments on Matthew, make a few comments on chapter 18, and then we'll get to our passage of uh, 21 through 35. Um, as Nathan and Will have been preaching throughout Matthew for 18 chapters now, I think we can see a pattern start emerging, and they've actually mentioned it multiple times, uh, that there are uh, narratives and there are discourses that go on throughout the chapters. Uh, the narratives is Jesus' actual interaction with the people, um, and then the discourses focus on his teaching and explanations of um, what just went on sometimes. So I think there are two things I want to mention about this. First, as we, pro as we have progressed already throughout Matthew, um, the tension seems to rise between the characters, uh, between specifically Jesus, the disciples, the religious leaders, and the crowds. Um, and eventually, as we know, as, uh, when we get to the, towards the end of the book, um, the disciples will betray Jesus and the religious leaders will cru crucify Jesus. So the tension gets really high later on. But here we're in Discourse 4, so it's, it's not as high, but it, it's, it's there. Um, and then the second point is, uh, as we went through Matthew, I want to make a reminder of each discourse, what happened and who Jesus was addressing. So the first discourse was um, chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, um, where Jesus says, five, ch chapter 5, verse 1 says, when Jesus saw the crowd. So Jesus turns the attention to everybody. It's not just his disciples. And he relays the, fo the followers of Jesus to, sorry, the, the teaches on true discipleship. So true followers of Jesus obey him because they love him, admire him, and desire to be like him as much as possible. And then later on, as there's another narrative or interaction with Jesus and some people, and then Discourse 2 comes along in chapter 10, and Jesus summons the disciples and gives them authority. So it's very focused directly on the disciples. And basically he says to them, followers of Jesus strive to imitate his mission, drawing strength and grace from him to empower their work. And then there's another interaction with Jesus and some people, and Discourse 3 comes along in chapter 13, and again, like Discourse 1, it's directed to everybody. It's not just his disciples. The large, uh, 13.1 says, the large crowds gathered to him, so he got into a boat, sat down, and started teaching. So again, it's, it's directed at everyone, not just his disciples. And he basically says here, his words are akin to a seed, Right? They begin small, but grow, gradually expand, surpassing all expectations of size and impact. And now we get to chapter 18, where again he brings the focus from everybody down to his disciples again. He addresses 
just his disciples, like what Scott brought for us two Sundays ago. It says, at the time, the disciples came to him and said. So it's, there's a clear discussion between Jesus and his close followers. And at the end of the sermon, I'll be able to summarize exactly what this discourse is trying to relay. But the point is, it's directed directly at the disciples. And then discourse five, five is in chapter 23, um, which we'll get to eventually. But again, it's directed at everyone. So it's, there's three discourses that are directed at everyone and two that are strictly directed to the disciples. Um, so now, as uh, that was kind of the entire book, now zooming into chapter 18, I want to bring a few reminders of what's been going on and I think it will help us understand um, verses 21 through 35. So when Scott was preaching, he brought this idea of God's economy. Um, and it was basic, it all started from the question, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And Jesus' response was very unconventional, if you may. It really didn't answer the question, but at the same time, it was directly to the point and the core problem of the question. And he basically says, if you don't have childlike humbleness, there is no getting into the kingdom at all. And then verses 5 through 6, um, it shows the character of the protective father. So he says, woe to you, woe to the person that tempts the child, that brings him out of um, the protective Father, father nature, if you may. So, woe to that person. But then 7 through 9 is a direct, um, I guess, interjection to specifically the child. He says, you are responsible. So, if, if, if your eye is tempting you, pluck it out. And then 10 through 14 goes on to say, again, the caring nature of the father where he goes through and says, if, if a one sheep out of the 99 leaves, he will go and get it. He won't just let it die. And some have argued that 15 through 20 is the, one of the ways that Jesus actually does that. And it, he uses the church or other fellow believers to actually go out and, if you may, rescue those children back into the flock. So the, the, the pattern is, there's a question then there's, Jesus describes the protective, the nature of the father, then the responsibility of the child, then he goes back to the nature of the father again, and the responsibility of the child. And then we come to verse 21. So let's go ahead and read 21 through 35, and uh, I'll give my main point and split it up into certain sections. Verse 21, Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him ten thousand talents. And since he could not pay... His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe me. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. And he refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And you should, and you should not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you. Or, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. We're going to sp- I'm, I'm, I'm going to split this passage into three sections um, Peter's logical question. Jesus' again, unexpected response to the question, and then the upside down nature of the kingdom. So my main, the main point of the passage is our disposition to limitless forgiveness towards others is in direct correlation with my awareness of the king's merciful act towards me. So my disposition to limitless forgiveness towards others is in direct correlation with my awareness of the king's merciful act towards me. Let's start with verse 21, Peter's question. What in the world? What is he asking here? So Peter's question is actually spot on if you take it in context, right? So it could be phrased like this. Um, What Will preached on last Sunday it says, I un- uh, basically, I understand that when my brother sins, it is my responsibility to go out and pursue him and show him his fault so that he, there's two options here, he either acknowledges or you continue the process and add more people as the process continues, right? So if he listens, great, you've won a brother. If he hasn't, you continue that sequence, well, what if that offense repeats and he, you go out to your brother, he, he sins, you go out, he repents, you forgive him, but then he does it again and again and again and again. So that's what Peter, Peter's question is. What if he continues to do that? How many times do I have to forgive? So Jesus set up a hypothetical situation, but a very likely situation in uh, verse 15, when a brother sins against you. So it's, a, it's an actual sin. It's not hurt feelings or irritations or different aspects of Christian liberties. It's a direct, clear deviation from God's law on our, in our New Testament context of loving God and loving others. And I think Proverbs 12, 18 speaks to this really well on how we're supposed to do that, right? Proverbs 12, 18, there is one who speaks rashly like the thrusts of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. 
Or Proverbs 24, 29. Do not say, thus I shall do to him as he has done to me. I will render to the man according to his work. This is before the Sermon on the Mount. And, G- and Peter's question up to seven times, it comes from Amos 1. And back in that day, the, the rabbis agreed or took this, the standard when God was talking to the Israelite nation where three times I'll forgive, but on the fourth you won't, there is no forgiveness. So they took that and made that a standard. So what Peter does here is kind of multiplies it. You know, instead of three, let's make it six or seven. So Peter's saying up to seven times and I'll forgive him after that. But Jesus' response is really clear to that, right? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And there's slight variation of the original. It's a little ambiguous. There's 77 times in some Bibles and uh, 70 times seven in others. But that doesn't really change the point of the passage. And I, I, I could show that by, by asking the following question. Is Jesus really just elevating the bar of forgiving someone from 7 to 77 or 490 times? Is Jesus really giving us a system to sit there and you know, create checkboxes of 490 times and the 491st, I'm not forgiving you? I think we can see that Jesus is very clear to Peter. He says, no, not seven times, but 70 times 7, or 490, which is an obscure large number, but it may seem as an upper limit. And I think what Jesus is doing here is very clever. I think it's, if you are keeping track, you're missing the whole point of forgiveness. Whether the sin is large or small, it's easy to keep track of a small number of times one has been forgiven. However, the perspective kind of changes when it's large, right? There's a deliberate tracking. So seven, I could kind of keep in my head. Okay, seven, six, seven, okay, eight, I'm not forgiving you. 77 or 490, whichever one is actual or the actual original, it's more difficult. You have to have a system. You have to be very intentional on keeping track. So in context here, we're dealing with a repeated offense where the offender offends and continuously asks for forgiveness. And I think Proverbs 19.11 makes a great point to this. A man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. See, my attitude in a scenario changes, right? So instead of looking for forgiveness, I'm looking for that X number, whatever it is, to reach to not forgive. Jesus' response to Peter doesn't end here though, right? So he, he put us in a category. So if you're sitting here, and I think we've all done it, sitting, keeping track of whether I'm forgiving or not forgiving, you, I think our ears need to perk up. Because this, this parable is for us. The unexpected kingdom, king and kingdom. Verse 23, For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So let's imagine 
that this um, church building is the kingdom's justice court, for lack of a better term. And we've been given courtside seats. We're sitting here. We've been invited. Uh, we're sitting on the side of the scenario. And this scenario starts to kind of unravel, right? There's a king sitting somewhere here um, who's split the kingdom to n number of districts and placed uh, intellectual trusted slaves in charge of each district. And we're, we're, again, we're invited for this hearing where the king is going to settle accounts. That was what the invitation said. And we see it unfold. And verse 24 says, When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. So we're sitting here and, you know, multiple t- one of the days and multiple people start coming through. And then there's this, this fellow that comes in and he owes 10,000 talents. And for context, a denarii is a day's wage. A talent is 6,000 denarii. So approximately 20 years of work. And this guy owes 60 million days of age, approximately. But that's not the point. The point is it's immensely large. We have no idea how large it is, but it's, it's huge. But not only is it huge, it's also a debt that has to be paid, that has to be settled. That's why the king calls him in, to settle it. But since he did not have the means to repay, verse 25, his Lord commanded him to be sold along with his wife and children and all that he had and repayment to be made. So evidently, whatever venture this fellow was in, there was no repayment that could be made. Notice how the verbiage uh, went from king to lord. And the Lord commanded that he and his family and all his possessions be sold. That wouldn't even come close to the, the amount that he actually owed. And to us in the modern days, it sounds grotesque, like very, very weird. But I think Spurgeon really hits the nail on the head with this one. Jesus doesn't justify the act of the Lord in this story. He simply uses the custom of the day as part of a scenery of his parable so that his disciples sitting there would actually understand what's going on. And I think we could could understand it as well that despite the fact that everything of his basically possessions and his close relatives being sold, that is still a just act on the Lord's part. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself, saying, have patience with me and I'll repay you everything. So there is two things. First was the slave's response wasn't necessarily like, "Uh, that's, that's a little rough, don't you think? He understood his consequences. He, he went out, did whatever he did, created a huge debt, and now he understands the consequences to that. And second, the, the king or the Lord had two res- three responses really in this scenario. So the first was to put the person in prison and sell his family so that his family could eventually pay off the debt. The second was he, he could sell everyone and just get a lump sum. Or 
we could see what happens later in verse 27. The Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him of that debt. So we're sitting here courtside. We hear 60 million days of work, which we probably can't even comprehend what that even means. But we're sitting there, and then the, the king just forgives it. And, I mean, there, there probably would be a gasp in the, in the court. And then the story doesn't end there either, right? But the slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and he seized him, and, be- and he began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe me. So it's kind of clear that the, the, the slave that was just forgiven a lot also was poor because he didn't have a lot, so he comes out and a person owes him something, and he just jumps on him, quite literally. And verse 29, so his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me, and I will repay you. Does that sound familiar? (laughs) Have patience with me, and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So his fellow slaves saw what had happened, and they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. So we're sitting at this court, right? We're, we're, we're invited, we're going through, then this guy comes in, he was forgiven, he walks out, and then someone comes up to the king, whispers in his ear, and then they're bringing him back in, that same person. And now we hear the Lord say this, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt, all the 60 million plus days of work, Because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the tortures until he should repay all that was owed him. And verse 35, which is Jesus' summation of the entire parable, my heavenly Father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. I'd like to know a few things. The king's character. Initially, it was dotting the I's, crossing the T's, you must make repayment. Then he goes from that to forgiving, compassionate. And then from that, back to dotting the T's and crossing the I's, right? He's ruly, he's direct. And if we've identified ourselves with where Jesus left us in verse 22, of if you're counting, if you're on 76, verse 33 is for us. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? Listen, failure to forgive excludes one from the kingdom whose pattern is to forgive. That's how we enter into the kingdom to begin with. 
So Jesus in chapter 18 is giving us two rules of the kingdom. What Scott preached on, the answer to, their first, to the disciples' first question. Not only will you be the greatest, but you'll also enter into the kingdom when you have childlike submission to the king, childlike humbleness. Just like the servant did in verse 26. We don't have a way to pay off our debt unless the, the king feels compassion or has compassion and releases us to be free from our pleading. And second, mimicking the king's forgiving heart. That's our disposition towards other people. When we understand the amount of debt that Jesus has taken upon his, himself, our disposition towards others will drastically change. It'll go from keeping check marks on people to remembering, to seeing Jesus and focus on Jesus over what's, what's, what's going on. So to summarize the fourth discourse, Jesus describes the life in the community of his followers, right? The community is marked by childlike humility, love for the struggling, what we read in 1 John 2 today, and a dis disposition towards reconciliation, right? That's, that's our initial reaction. But often we see ourselves, at one point, like when we were reading, we see ourselves aligning with the, uh, or seeing the, the slave who went out of the door and immediately um, cho started choking someone. Sometimes we see ourselves aligning there, but we're like, wait, that's not just. That's not right. So when you face the truth, each one of us is next in line to face the king who is settling all these accounts, right? We are all servants of the king. And each one of us debt owes a debt that we could never afford, that we could never pay back. We, there's nothing good in us that could pay back that debt. Our good works are like dirty rags. We can claim that we could repay. We could help the poor. We, could, we can love each other. But apart from the declaration of the king and compassion of the king, there is no repayment possible. So in our hypothetical situation here, everyone is called to the court. Everyone is going to come to the king and have their account settled. And there is no salvation. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is no salvation apart from falling on our face before God and pleading like the servant. And friend, if, if you're here and you're listening, if you find yourself right here counting on, on number 76, there is forgiveness. There is forgiveness. And it's not just like a forgetting or a dismissing. It is a merciful act of God that there is one who paid for our failures. He, Jesus, took everything to the cross to pay our sins, all our sins, yours and mine. And this is every Christian's plea. This is where we live. This is what differentiates us from any other religion. It's not within ourselves. It's all on the cross. 
And it's all through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And if you're sitting here, you know, you're on 489, you're reaching 490, nobody is perfect at this. I think we've, we've all been there. Inward, we are torn. At first glance, we are repelled by this servant's action. Like, how? How can you walk out of the door and, and then start choking? And then we take a de- deeper analysis of ourselves and we actually find ourselves in that same exact position. But there's a reason why Jesus taught this. Forgiveness is... I think I like, I don't remember who said this, but forgiveness is like a muscle. And sometimes it needs spiritual intervention or supernatural intervention. And if you find yourself in a position where you honestly can say, listen, I can't grant forgiveness. I've heard it with my own eyes, with my own ears. I can't grant this person forgiveness. Talk to someone. Remember, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger, and it's his glory to overlook a transgression. Find a Christian brother or sister. We're starting growth groups that are aimed specifically to, to foster relationships where we could come to each other and say, look, I'm struggling. No one's going to tell you, get away from me. At least I hope not, and if they do, go find another person and talk to them. We are here for each other. We're here to help each other walk. The worst thing you could do is ignore your own plea for forgiveness. You know that's the right thing to do. But it's hard. I'm not saying it's easy. And may our hearts be as ready to forgive as they are ready to choke. And lastly, let's keep our eyes on Jesus. I don't think any of us need to be persuaded about pain and suffering or that people hurt other people or that Christians hurt other Christians or that husbands and wives hurt each other. But Jesus is not diminishing your pain. Instead, if you're a child of God, if if you've humbled yourself before the King, He is reminding you of your past, your your gigantic debt that you owed. And helping you show mercy just as you were shown mercy. The aspect of forgiveness is non-negotiable in the upside down or unexpected kingdom. It's non-negotiable. If you've been forgiven, you must forgive. But we must help each other figure out how can we get there. And if you have questions, talk to someone about it. Talk, talk about it. Open up. It might be difficult. It might, it might be tears. But we, we are called to um, mourn with those who mourn. And we're here for you. But then the other side of forgiveness, if you, if you have questions, again, if you have questions about this, talk with someone. But it is also safer to get a second or third option than relying on your conclusion. If you're in a dangerous relationship or a situation, there are things in place to protect you. So I think there are times where we could genuinely say, listen, I'm really not struggling with forgiveness right now. I could truly say I don't have a relationship where I'm struggling to forgive. 
But then there are times you could be in a position where I'm struggling with the facts of the matter of my debt, how big I owe God. Or you're just living your day-to-day mimicking our king. So in conclusion, we bring the unexpected kingdom to this earth when we view all difficult interactions and situations with others through a lens that is focused on the mercy that we have been granted. Right? We don't focus on the sin. We bring it in light of what we have been forgiven. So I think that concludes the fourth discourse, and it shows us the life in the community. So as a church, let's help each other. Let's grow together in these scenarios where they're difficult, they're hard, but life is hard. But we do have an answer here. We do have a solution. And as cliche as it sounds, that solution is in Jesus Christ. That solution is in our perspective with the debt that we have been forgiven. Let's pray.